You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Business. It's all the things that keep this world turning. And behind every one of these companies is a partner helping to keep it all moving. It's why the local flower shop and your favorite pizza joint, the startup and the stadium, hospitals and hotels, banks and restaurants nationwide, all choose the advanced network, cybersecurity solutions, and round-the-clock trusted partnership from Comcast Business, the company that powers more businesses than anyone else. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Restrictions apply. Call or visit ComcastBusiness.com to learn more. Add a berry blast off for your day with the new berry pebbles. A berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. <laughs> with the new berry way to pebbles. Yabba dabba do you with berry pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba dabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in-store at your nearest retailer. Hello there. Thanks for tuning into the show today. I've got another good one for you. I'm really excited to share this episode with you, and I want to thank you right off the bat for downloading this episode. Quite literally get paid by the download these days, so any little bit you can do helps. You can download those back episodes, save them for later, whatever. It's going to help me. It's going to help keep this show going, and I really, really appreciate it. I'll keep this short and sweet, but I just wanted to remind you about the Facebook group. If you're bored sitting around at home right now, or if you're bored sitting around wherever you are right now, and you've got a device that can access the interwebs, and you have Facebook, we have a Facebook group for people who like this show. It's The Tone Mob on Facebook. You can check it out, and there's a bunch of really awesome people in there. We're talking about gear, we're talking about food, we're talking about nonsense, just like we do on this podcast, and we're doing it every day there in the group. So if you haven't joined... Come hang out with us. There's a few thousand really cool people in there just chilling and having a great time. So, yeah, check that out. And without further ado, let's get into this week's podcast. Why not? Check out this one with Barry Grisbeck. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar tone and the people behind it. I'm your host, Blake Wylan, and with me today, I have Barry Gresbick from Gres Guitars. How's it going, man? Hey, Blake. Very well, thanks. We finally made it happen. It's been like nine months in the planning, it seems. Yes, yes. Well, we were originally going to do it in person, but, you know, something happened, and now we're not supposed to see people. It's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> 
So. I was looking forward to a little long weekend up in Portland and dropping into the shred shed and hanging out, but it just wasn't in the cards. Nope, but that's okay. We, we'll do it one of these days. It, it'll happen. Yeah. We'll get through it. But uh, yeah, so for everyone who's listening, if you've been following along on the social media or in the Facebook group, which I guess is also social media, but uh, Instagram is what I meant by that primarily, you'll have seen me ranting and raving in a good way about uh, Barry's guitars at one point or another. Uh, he was kind enough to send one up as a loner um, before we did this podcast, and I'm just absolutely in love with it. But before we get into the details on all that, I kind of want to know about you. What's your story? Where did you come from, and how did you start making such rad instruments? <laughs> Thanks. Um, I uh, I started guitar building about 10 years ago, so sort of new to all of this, uh, you know, considering there's people who have been doing it for 40 years plus. Um, and uh, I, before that, I was, I had a, I guess, a fairly complete career in the audio industry. I was, uh, and still am, an acoustician and product designer. Um, so I've made my living designing speakers, uh, designing analog audio equipment, um, and, uh, you know, as a sound designer, designing sound systems and the acoustics for churches and performing art centers and stuff like that. So I just, you know, I spent a lot of years in audio and as a product designer and as a guitar player and, um, uh, you know, things change and you need to make a new plan. And, you know, one day I sort of thought, you know, I, I should probably try to build a guitar. I kind of know a lot about product design and acoustics and sound and guitars. And if you put all this together, that's kind of a nice mix of skills. So I designed a guitar, built it. It kind of came out okay. So I built another one. And, you know, here we are. I guess that's, yeah. the, that's the super short version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'd, I'd like to get into the nitty gritty details because I, you know, there's there's a lot of people who build guitars that don't have a background in acoustics. And I have gotten fortunate enough to meet a few people through doing the podcast that that have that skill set and that that knowledge base. And it's they they come at guitars from a very different perspective than most people I know. You know, we're, you know, us plebes are just kind of like, oh, it feels right or it sounds like woody or whatever, but you actually know the math behind this stuff. So, to some extent, yes. You know, I think um, designing products is a little bit of an art. You know, it's not just math and science to make a product that's successful, whether it's a you know a studio monitor or a guitar or whatever you're designing, you know, a widget. Um, you know, you just have to have, you do have to have the technical knowledge and the skills, I guess, but you also have to understand the user and what it's intended to, or how it's intended to be used. And it, like in the case of a guitar, you know, if you're not a guitar player, you know, how do you know if that neck feels right? Right. Not that there even is a right, because there's so many preferences, but, but, um, you know, sort of, it's exactly the same in acoustics, believe it or not, um, in that it's part art and part science. Um, if you you look sort of historically at concert halls and how they've been designed and built over hundreds of years and over even just the last 75 years, as people have in theory gotten smarter in the last 75 years, they've built worse and worse concert halls because um, you get the math people just doing calculations and saying, this is, this should work. This should be great. And then they, you know, you may you end up making rooms that sound bad. 
Because uh, it isn't just science and math. You have to have some empirical knowledge and experience. And, and uh, so, you know, guitars are the same, I think. That's a, that's, that's interesting. It is, it does make sense that it would be a combination. I'm, I'm really interested in the, I don't know that much about it, but I'm interested in some of the science behind rooms because mm. the one I'm sitting in right now uh, is kind of a weird, it's a weird room in that it just, things do sound really good out here. I, I, you know, I mess with things in the box a little bit, but I really, as long as my mic placement's okay, I really don't have to do a lot of, of post work when I do demos and things. It's pretty much as raw as it gets. In fact, like mm -hmm. when I did the, the chase world, chase bliss, dark world demo that I did here. Oh, almost geez. I don't know. A year and a half ago, whenever that thing came out, we just took a zoom mic in the mid side position and just stuck it in front of the speaker and we didn't really think it was going to sound all that good. But when we played it back, it was like, it sounds fine. We cut a little bass out. But and I think that has a lot to do with with the room. Um, when I when I gave my dimensions to a friend of mine that is a little more into this stuff, he was like, well, who gave you these dimensions? I was like, uh, my yard. It's just what fit there. <laughs> <laughs> and so and he's like, well, this this has really good ratios. And so I was like, I didn't I don't even really know what that means. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's just, it and, just sounds good out here. Yeah, and so, some of that is luck. You know, there are a lot of really, really famous and successful recording studios that were just some room that people moved into and started recording, right? So mm -hmm. you can just be lucky, um, but you can also be unlucky. You can have a room that's horrible. It's got all the wrong things going on, the wrong dimensions, the wrong angles. Um, so, um, and the other thing is, I suspect you're close miking, right? That mic is right up on the grill cloth, more or less. Um, most of the time or I usually, back I, I no, I, I, most of the time I'm close miking, but I usually have a room mic mixed in there okay. as well. Most of the time I didn't on that you can get a vi video. It's, it's just a, it was capturing, but it was still capturing some of the room because of the mid side nature of that yeah. mic. Yeah. You can get away with a lot though, when you're close miking, cause you can almost think of it as signal to noise, right? If you have a cardioid mic and it's right up in the face of the amp. It's receiving a lot of information from the amp and being cardioid or hypercardioid, maybe it's getting less information from the room. So if you, you know, how good your room is still matters, but it it's matters to a lesser extent than if it was, let's say, an Omni mic you stuck in front of the guitar cabinet where it's listening to the, the cabinet just as much as it is the room. Gotcha. Well, here's a weird. I promise we're going to get into guitar stuff, but I have I have had a lot of people ask me about my my room my shed. It's like, oh, how did you build it? You know, and I, I did, I, you know, I did what I could afford to do. You know, it's not entirely soundproof. It's, uh, but it's as much as I could, you know, I did the whole room within a room thing, but I, you know, I couldn't afford MLV on the whole, you know, everything, <laughs> you know, and all that stuff. There is some in it, but, uh, not that much. Um, but like, do you have any, like just general advice for when somebody is, thinking about building a studio or even just an, a nice, nicer practice space like this? Like, do you have any just kind of yeah. high level tips? Yeah. A couple of like random things that come up all the time. Um, I think the first is that there's um, interior acoustics, what your room sounds like when you're in the room, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the character and the nature of the reverb. And then there's sound isolation, which is how much sound is getting out or coming in through the structure. And they right. are fairly independent of each other. 
Uh, yeah. and a lot of times people forget that and they think that, well, I put up some sound absorbing panels on the wall that should keep the sound in. And, and that doesn't do much for keeping the sound in. That's really about manipulating the interior acoustics. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're talking about sound isolation, probably the, the, the two biggest points are um, making sure it's airtight uh, and making sure everything is as massive as possible. Um, which is why you'll you'll see people putting up two layers of drywall instead of one or three layers of drywall. Yeah, um, I, I, did I, did, I did two. I did two. Yeah. So making sure everything's and when I say airtight, I mean you're going to get acoustical caulk, which is a non-hardening caulk, so it won't shrink and harden and then open up the gaps over time. Mm-hmm. And you're going to caulk the daylights out of everything. For example, if you have a, a an outlet, an electrical outlet in the wall, you just cut a huge hole in your three layers of drywall, which are supposed to keep the sound in. So if you just pop that outlet in, you've got a sound leak. Yeah. You know, think about like filling, filling your studio with water. Where's all the water going to ooze out? Fill up all those spots with this acoustical caulk. So making it really sealed up and airtight helps a lot in terms of sound escaping. Um, right. And then, you know, simple things like minimizing windows and doors. Windows and doors are always your leakiest points. And then your floors and your ceiling are sometimes tough. It's really easy to go and put three or four layers of drywall on the wall. It's harder to build up the floor. You know, maybe you're on a slab and that works reasonably well. But um, but so airtight and lots of mass. And you said yeah, MLV mass loaded vinyl. That stuff helps. You know, that's sort of like the icing on the cake. If you can get that in there, that's great. The more all the more the more tricks you can pull out, the better the final result will be. Uh, and the other thing that is really important is the thickness of the walls, believe it or not. So the the, the uh, frequencies that get through a wall are in part re- uh, uh, proportional to the thickness of that wall cavity, right? So if you build a two by four wall or a two by six wall or a two by eight wall, the bigger that airspace in there, the better it'll uh, block low frequencies from getting out. Right. You know, which may be less important if you're a guitar player, or more important if you're a bass player or a drummer. So really thick walls. Uh, uh, reject or contain bass frequencies much better than, than just little two by four walls. Right. And that's a lot of like, that's the main struggle with isolation, right? Is, is the bass frequencies. It's kind of easy to trap the higher stuff. But, but that's you right. That's booming right. Bass. It's, yeah. It's um, harder and harder to, to, to stop bass. Like when you go to a movie theater, for example, right? You could have, um, you know, a Bond film and, in theater one with explosions and a love story in theater two right next to it. And you need to not hear those explosions in the, in the other theater. So there, you know, you're talking about using like a, uh, a block wall, cinder block wall, or even a concrete tilt up wall, Mm -hmm. plus a big air gap, plus four layers of drywall on each side of that wall so that it'll have enough mass and enough airspace to get those really low frequencies um, uh, to, to be isolated. Well, stuff you right. can't do at home, but you just keep adding it on, right? Make that wall massive, more mass, more, uh, airspace, right? Larger dimensions. And, and you get there eventually. So I, you know, I was just doing this all via Google. You know, I, I had a little bit of insight from a friend who built a really nice studio here locally, but, um, you know, he, he obviously had a big, bigger budget to work with than I did. But one thing that I was getting really confused on was the concept of the if I'm, I'm reaching back like several years in my knowledge bank <laughs> and I haven't used any of this in years the concept of the third leaf um being a problem 
Um, oh, and it seemed like right. there, that was a bit of a debate between some people, whether it was a problem or not. Um, cause I was trying to figure out, cause I did like my exterior framing and then built, and then my interior framing is completely separate except for at the floor, obviously. Um, right. like it doesn't touch, it doesn't really touch the exterior framing anywhere. Um, and those gaps are caulked and all that. But I was yeah. trying to figure out, like, like I seen some people put drywall, like when they were stacking their drywall, they would do like two layers on the inside of the wall and two layers on the outside of the wall. And some people said, no, it'd be better just to do four layers on the outside. And I wasn't, I was so confused by that. Does, does that yeah. make sense? Well, yeah. And there's really no point to be, there's no reason to be confused. This isn't something that's actually in debate. It's maybe just some point of confusion on the internet. Okay. Um, so, right, because you can find lots of information on the internet. Um, <laughs> yes. So, the the idea that a third leaf is bad assumes that your wall dimension is constant. So, so if you have a, a two by six wall, um, and you break that up into two sections instead of one big section, it'll perform more poorly. Mm-hmm. And the reason, the main reason, and this is kind of a cool concept that I think you can visualize is, so let's say you have sound energy from something in the room and that sound energy strikes the wall and the drywall moves diaphragmatically a little bit, right? When the energy hits it, it moves. Yeah. You can imagine that, right? Of course. And then that then is modulating the pressure inside your wall cabin, right? Cause there's air trapped in there in theory, like a, drum. Two by, like a drum. And then the air pressure modulation stimulates the surface on the other side of the wall cavity, which is, let's say, the outside of your room or the next room. Okay. So that's how the, that's that's one of the ways that the sound gets through is is the drywall vibrates, modulates the pressure inside the cavity, which then moves the other side of the wall, and the gotcha. sound getting through. So the bigger that airspace, you're modulating the pressure less for the same amount of energy striking the drywall. Right, so if you have a big, huge cavity and you're moving the drywall the same amount, pressure change is less. Right. If the pressure change is less, it can't affect the other side as much. Right. Okay. Is that making sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It and does. If you break that up into, and you put a leaf in the middle, you know, another wall in the middle. Now you've got a higher pressure in each side, and the sound can go right through. Oh, okay. That makes so much more sense than what some random guy on a forum was trying to tell me. <laughs> and so that's 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 one of the ways that sound gets through the wall is that pressure modulation. The, the other main, the other way is you know through leakage, which we've talked about. You're going to caulk everything, so there won't be any leakage. And then the, the the main third way is through physical vibration, right? So when your when your drywall vibrates, it also vibrates the stud, and mm-hmm. that stud might be connected to the drywall on the other side. So that then gets transferred into the drywall on the other side and that vibrates, which is why you'll see things like resilient channels, which kind of put the drywall on a spring. So when the sound hits the drywall, it it decouples it from the stud and can't vibrate the stud. So it can't then pass through to the other side. Right. Or that's what the mass loaded vinyl truck. One of the things the mass loaded vinyl tries to do is decouple. So the vibrations can't transmit through. Right, right, right. Physically from, from, you know, one piece of wood to the next piece of wood to the next piece of wood and eventually out the other side. Right. Breaking that connection. Breaking the connection. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's something that I see people who like set up home theater stuff in their basement. They hang the drywall on, uh, isolated hangers, you know, to try to avoid it going up through the floor. That's right. 
this is all like hyper nerdy stuff and i love it it's great (laughs) (laughs) it's a it's just like i don't get to talk about that all that often uh in the context of this podcast so it's it's kind of fun one one other thing like you know that i would tell people if they were trying to do something like this is what i did with my electrical is uh, to avoid having to you know buy or uh these special sealed boxes uh or you know a lots of acoustic caulk which i did use cases and cases of caulk on this <laughs> yeah um fortunate i got really lucky i found a huge huge case of it at with one of those like uh what do they call like the the restore the habitat humanity oh yeah yeah i found i was like i'm just like looking for caulk anywhere i can find it i was like oh there is this massive case of acoustic caulk and it's like a dollar a tube give it all to me (laughs) it was awesome uh but one thing is uh if you can design like picture the design of the room and have it look good with surface mount electrical that's going to save you a lot of headaches that's why i did surface mount electrical in oh, here oh sure don't even don't even pierce the wall yep. keep it solid yeah yeah i just uh, it was that's a pointer that i've tried to make to lots of people because it's an easy one you know it's if you can make it aesthetically pleasing with surface mount uh go for that cuz it's going to be it's going to save you a lot of headache so oh yeah as soon as you put a hole in that wall you're 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 popping the balloon, right? You made this great tight structure and then you start poking holes in it where the sound can leak out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And then also I would say my other, the big mistake I made, cause I didn't, I actually didn't start this project with the idea that it was going to be a music room exclusively. So I thought it was just going to be kind of a man cave um, where we hang out with friends and put some couches and stuff. But slowly it kind of came to realize it's, it's going to be a music room exclusively. But so I didn't pour a slab. So my floor is a big weak point for me. It's it's as good as I could afford to make a wood floor. It's pretty beefy for a wood floor, but it's still a wood floor at the end of the day. So a slab would have been better. So those are my two quick and dirty things. If you can pour, afford a slab, do a slab and surface mount electrical. So anyway believe it or not believe it or not slabs can be a problem in um, adjoining spaces because sound will travel through the slab. Um, oh right and then pop right. up in the next room but in your case you have a little standalone structure so a slab would have been kind of nice yeah there was a and it would have ended up costing me the same amount of money that i spent trying to beef up this wood floor but it was like <laughs> already half built by the time i was like oh this right. is going to be a music room and i was like uh oh what am i going to do about this floor this isn't going to work uh, yeah, we so. start stomping on the floor, and it sounds like you're beating on a drum. We're like, oh well, that's yeah not yeah enough. <laughs> yeah it's pretty massive i mean it ended up putting a uh like a six by 12 beam down the center of mm-hmm. it and uh and there's it and there's a couple layers of mlv in the floor in between the oh, excellent. several layers of floor so I, mean, I did as good as i could but it's still a weak point it just it just is so there always is though right i mean no matter how cool your studio is uh there's always a budget you always have to make some some kind of decisions about what you are and are not going to do right yeah very yeah. rare that you know, I have a client or a project where they're just like, yeah, do all, do everything. It just, yeah, money's no object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a. I mean, all in all, I'm very happy with it. But if I had to rebuild it, I there's a couple things that I would do to make it perfect. I guess perfect for me, anyway. But uh, yeah, guitars and stuff. So that was <laughs> the building a shred shed portion of the podcast. Um, yeah. So you started building guitars. And how does your knowledge as an acoustician like play into that? 
what what considerations or design protocol have you followed that came directly from that world? Well, I think when I when I first started building guitars, I I started out building acoustic guitars uh, and studying that topic pretty intently. And what I was finding is I was reading uh, about how to build an acoustic guitar and how how an, how an acoustic guitar works. All of the principles that the people were talking about in these books were already familiar to me, right? So if you're so I kind of just had this giant head start. As a matter of fact, there were instances where I'm reading these books and I'm thinking, wait, that's not right. But all right, I'll let it go, you know? Because, um, <laughs> you know, you, what you find, with, especially with acoustic guitars, is you have people who have learned to build acoustic guitars through, through a mentorship, uh, a, a apprenticeship sort of program, and they learn how to do it and they get very, very good at it. They don't always really know why what they're doing works. Um, and then then they start talking about it. And sometimes you hear things that you, know, you just know aren't, well, that's not really how it works, but that's fine. Your guitars are awesome. So that's cool. Um, anyway, so that was sort of when we start talking about acoustics and resonance and wood thickness, I mean, that's what makes a good acoustic guitar is you want a, a, a stiff and light top and how you adjust the resonance of the top um, messes or alters the sound of the guitar and, and, all of this has to do with with braces and stiffness and and resonance and it was just all easy i guess for me um not to say i've mastered it you never really do but at least from a learning curve standpoint when i dove into it i was just sort of like oh yeah this all makes sense i, I already know about this stuff because you know i design speakers for a living and in a lot of ways it's the same you know you want a speaker cone to be stiff and light and you know just all these properties that that um that, that are uh, uh, paralleling, I guess, or concepts that parallel. Mm-hmm. And then you obviously took some of that acoustic building and translated it into the electric world with like the Mendocino yeah, that's I, here. I, that's right. I kind of realized that although I do dig acoustic guitars, I didn't really know that many acoustic guitar players. And... You know, I don't know. I just sort of thought, you know, who am I going to sell guitars to, right? Because you know, when you build one guitar, that's like a great personal accomplishment. But, you know, you're not a brand yet. You're just a guy who's built one guitar. And when then you right. start thinking about, well, hey, how am I going to sell these, right? What what make, what make what am I doing that's unique? And I just sort of felt like there was a hole. There wasn't, I didn't feel like there was a hole in the acoustic guitar market. Like, what am I going to fill? What am I going to do? that's super cool and different and unique and why would somebody buy from me? But I did see what was a whole or I perceived as a whole in the electric market in the sort of semi hollow body world. Um, and the, the idea is if you take like an ar- big arch, big hollow arch top guitar, right? Uh, an L five or an ES one seventy five or a big Gretsch, whatever. Uh, and so that's your, like your reference point for an arch top. And then maybe on the other side of the spectrum is your solid body, you know, your Les Paul, your strap, whatever. Um, and then in the middle is your semi-hollow body, which would be like a 335 or something. Except, and in my opinion, a 335-ish guitar is nowhere near the middle. It's way closer to a Les Paul. In fact, there's lots of recordings where it's hard to say, is that a Les Paul or a 335? If you have them back to back and you go back and forth and you play them, you can obviously tell the difference. But I sort of felt like the semi-hollow bodies that were commercially available were way too solid body like they weren't in the middle between an arch top and a solid body and i wanted to make something that actually was in the middle more acoustic basically right 
Right, right, right. Um, and I think, you know, there's logical reasons that the market did that. Uh, you know, you go back into the 60s and, you know, you're looking at giant amps, you know, people playing super reverbs, these giant loud amps on stage. And you needed your guitars to be pretty darn feedback resistant and pretty stiff, which is, which is what leads them to be more or less Paul-like and less 175-like so that they can hold up on stage feedback-wise. Um, but now with their trends towards smaller amps and lower stage volume, you can actually have a guitar that has a little more resonance and life to it. And it'll still be manageable on stage because you're not playing an 80-watt amp. You're playing a 20-watt amp. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> that's one of the things that, that is so unique about this guitar to me is, I mean, because of all the reasons we just talked about, I do get to play loud uh, pretty regularly. And I, you know, it's not the biggest space in the world. So when I'm when I'm playing loud, it's, you know, whatever guitar I'm playing will feed back and, and resonate and all that stuff. What was so surprising to me is how controllable this was for being so, you know, loud and acoustically by, you know, unplugged. Like normally when I have a guitar like that, like a Gretsch or something, it, it's really difficult to control the feedback. And on you with this guitar where I, you know, when I strum it, it's like sounds loud and it can feel the vibration of the top and everything, but I can control it. And I, uh, I, I thought that was a lot of fun, especially for me playing my <laughs> weird sludgy nonsense that I like to play at high volumes that I don't know. I don't know what it is about it that makes it. I, I mean, I can just like put my hand on it and settle it down when I want it to, or let it go when I don't want it to, you know, don't want it to ring out like that. But you, you really yeah, nailed I think it. Some of that, that is thing. like like fine-tuning how much resonance, right? I sort of feel like in the semi-hollow bodies that existed, the, the resonance that was chosen for the instrument by the designer for the instrument to have was kind of on the low side. And mm -hmm. I just sort of feel like we can let a little more out. Yeah. And it's still, especially because we're playing on slightly smaller amps, not quite as crazy loud. So we can let the body go a little more. So it's not like we're saying it's a hollow body, which you know may have its own problems, but it's just taking that semi-hollow body and sliding it a little more towards the middle, right? A little more lively, but not going crazy. It's supposed to be a useful instrument for people. Yeah. I because there's no F holes in this thing, or I mean, it's weird that that's just yeah. become a standard term, even though they're not always F holes, but that's just what <laughs> <Right>. it is. <laughs> uh, it, how thick is the top on it? It's very thin. It's like an acoustic guitar top. So it's about a hundred. It's just over an eighth of an inch thick. Let's put it that way. Okay. Just okay. Hundred and thirty thousandths, roughly. Um, so it's been treated like an acoustic guitar top. So thinned way down. So it's super lively. And then there's actually bracing on the underside, sort of like an acoustic guitar would have to ensure it has enough structure um, and to break up the resonance so that you're getting a lot of different frequencies resonating. And it, so it doesn't just honk at one frequency on you. Can you explain the the like some general bracing concepts? Because I I really know nothing about it. I know that that has a huge effect on an acoustic guitar's tone, but I don't know like I don't know what what makes it do one thing and what style of bracing makes it do another thing. I don't know anything about that. Well, yeah, I mean I can give you some some general general ideas, and and, and it's it's hard to have a, a a hard and fast. Well, if you do this, this will happen. Because uh, there's so many variables, but generally speaking, if you if you take a piece of wood, uh, usually a like a 
you know, spruce or uh, redwood or cedar or something that you're going to make an acoustic guitar top out of. Um, if you, when you get it, it's a thick board. Mm-hmm. And if you tap on it, it's like, you know, kind of like tapping on your desk. It's sort of tight and bright and doesn't really ring the way you want it to. So you start thinning it down until it really starts to vibrate uh, really, really well. And then you put strings on it and the strings are pulling with something like 170 pounds of force. So this top, which you just thickness down to just the right thickness so it resonates beautifully, then proceeds to get torn off the top of the guitar. Right. Because it can't hold up to basically somebody standing on it, right? Mm-hmm. So so the bra- the bracing is you know, primarily there to uh, resist the tension of the strings. And you'll see that uh, uh, what's called bellying. Sometimes when you look at the bridge of an acoustic guitar, just behind the bridge, you can sort of see some deformation of the top where the bridge is pulled up just a little. Right. That's called bellying. And if you're a... If you're really fine-tuning the guitar, you almost would have a purposely a little bit of bellying. It's a sign that it's not overbuilt. If the guitar has no bellying, you know, that's a big manufacturer who doesn't want warranty problems, right? They've made their top a little thicker, the braces a little thicker, no bellying happening. Um, too much bellying, and it just keeps moving and moving and eventually fails on you. So one of the things that braces do is they work in conjunction with the top to just give the thing the structure it needs while still letting most of the top be thin so it can vibrate and produce some sound. Um, and then the other thing the braces do is they break up the resonance at the top so that you get a nice mix of resonant frequencies. Um, if, you, if you've Googled it, and you've probably seen the backside of an acoustic guitar top, you see what are called finger braces and all sorts of little braces that are running around. Um, and they do, they break up the top so that instead of resonating at one frequency, you put a brace down the middle and now you have two frequencies. You've broken that up because frequencies, of course, tied to dimensions, right? You can look at a frequency and then calculate the wavelength and you can see how that um, uh, gets divided up in an acoustic guitar top. Right. Okay. Okay. So the patterns that you see are primarily based off of the modern, uh, the Martin X bracing from, I don't know, hundred years ago now, more than that actually. Um, so even, you know, if you look at the inside of a Gibson guitar to a casual observer, whether it's a Gibson or a Martin or a whatever, they look roughly the same. You know, there's not, there there are a few, um, various patterns and a few things that people do that are different, but, but they're kind of similar. So the the differences between different brands are in the nuances. For example, you could make your top 10% thicker and your braces 10% thinner. So now you're depending a little bit more on the top to withstand the string tension and that has a certain sound or you can make your top paper thin and put beefier braces right either way you got to come up with the right enough uh, structural uh members there to, to to hold the thing together but you get a different sound by moving around which parts are stiff and which parts are loose it's such a it's such a uh interesting art form like guitar building and just guitars in general because like you said it, it you know largely we're relying on techniques that have been around forever and both in the solid bodies, you know, and in acoustic guitars, like it seems like we are a very slow to evolve, uh, <laughs> and type of industry and type of player. I, I, I couldn't stomach even looking at like headless guitars, uh, when they first came out, I was just like, Oh man, that's terrible. And now I kind of want one. 
Like it's <sighs> but taken a long time <laughs> for me to a long time for you to feel comfortable with that. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, because I, it's just like mentally so many players that I really respect have started making them cool to me. Uh, and you know, somehow, and and also having played some of them now, I'm like, oh, I get it. I get what this is all about. This all makes a lot more sense. Um, and then having, uh, I had Jason Rogers from JMR Guitars on, uh, what was it when in the winter? Yeah, it was last. It was uh, yeah, December of 19, I think. Uh, the episode might have dropped later. It doesn't matter. But he explained multi-scale in a way that I I had never heard oh, anybody yeah. explain it before. I I had no idea like. I was that guy that said, oh, it's for ergonomics. And he'll explain. He's like, well, it's not really for ergonomics. Like, that's not the driving force behind it. And it was it was a good episode. It was very informational. I remember that episode. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I kind of agree with with what, you know, I remember feeling like I agreed with what he was saying in that, you know, it does something different. It's not. And, and that's a lot of what what the guitar market is all about is different things for different folks, right? So it does something different. It's not inherently better or worse, but to some people it's better, right? If that's kind of the, the, the sound you're looking for or, but to someone else, it's not better. So, you know, not to say that multiscale is good or bad, just that it's, it's, a, it's different and it's going to appeal to some people. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. cool. It's fun to play. I mean, and they're all, and then again, there's different, multi-scale approaches like he talked about and so it was a yes it could be extreme or slight yeah and i i didn't really think about that either but like playing his guitars it was like oh it didn't this feels fine but you look at it you you look at it you're like oh no what is that i wouldn't know what to do with it but right this is not the way a guitar is supposed to look this looks (laughs) like like an art project gone bad wait yeah but it works i mean it it, once you play it, I think that's that's just what you, I would implore people to give it a try because it's kind of it's it's not as scary as as it looks. I still haven't it tried feels any way more natural. Yeah, it does. It does when it's when it's done in certain ways. Um, I have never tried the. I always forget the name of it. The squiggly frets. What are those called again? Oh, I don't know what they're called, but I know what you mean. <laughs> I've yeah. never tried those. Those seem weird, but I wonder if they would be the the same way. Like is it like yeah, the perfect? I mean, I- I don't remember whatever whatever they are. People know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, that's solving a problem that's only a problem to some people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that kind of gets into intonation, and you know, for example, some people are totally into the vintage Tele barrel bridge. Other people can't stand them because they don't intonate accurately enough. And right. famous recordings have been made on them, and yet, so you know, it's not good or bad. It's different, and it's each person so got a different thing that annoys them or that they love and and so for some people that extra intonation accuracy is just like oh i've been waiting for this and to someone else they're like what i don't care <laughs> yeah I, I i it's never really appealed to me but i don't know i'm i like the uh, i like vintage stuff too that's i i one of my favorite guitars is the les paul jr and i, I know the intonation is not perfect but it's okay I'm gonna play yeah. more uh, more bad notes on it than like you won't you won't even care about the intonation when I start. Right, playing. right. You can, you can squeeze just squeeze that uh, squeeze that chord a little too hard, and you'll screw things up way more than the intonation would have been off. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm famous for messing up chords. That's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> it's what I do best. So uh, you've gotten to do some pretty cool things, and you've got had some rad folks play your guitars. Like who's who's all playing your stuff now? 
Oh, let me think. Um, actually, I, I guess it's okay to name drop. I don't know. That's. Uh, I just asked you to. It feels like it feels. You asked right. me to. Yeah. Um, I actually, I just. Uh, uh, Michael Fuller, Full Tone Effects, just bought a baritone, and oh, uh, he's nice. he's super excited and having a good time with it. So, uh, I, you know, so that's that's kind of a a feel good sale, right? Yeah, for um, sure. And. Uh, Oh, let's see. Um, up in the Seattle area, there's a, a jazz player named Tim Lurch, who actually just posted some baritone videos also. Um, and uh, some blues folks. Down here by me, there's someone named uh, Kit Anderson, who's got a pretty famous recording studio uh, and does a lot of work in the blues scene. And he's got a custom Mendocino that he's been touring the world with and uh, he did a really cool True Fire video series playing uh, one of the Mendocinos as well. So uh, who else? Nick Moss, who's a, a blues guy up in Chicago. You know, some, some of these folks are, are um, constantly on tour. I mean, not right now, of course, because of all the things happening. But, you know, a lot of these are really sort of hardworking kick-butt bands that are on tour around the world all the time, you know, 200 plus dates a year all over the place. You know, Matt Hill from the Nikki Hill band, Laura Chavez is playing in Grez. Um, Paul Pagat up in Canada, uh, Tommy Harkenrider, a friend of mine down in LA. He's a beast. Paul, I think Paul's a beast. I forgot about him. Paul's, yeah, he's something else. He's He's got a, a small 15-inch arch top. Um, oh, interesting. So fully hollow, um, but, but kind of really small and comfortable. Uh, and, uh, oh, who else am I, am I forgetting? Um, Kenny Bresca, who's a pretty well-known, uh, Broadway hit musician, you know, plays on a lot of the like oh. Jersey boys and whatever, and uh, you know, those sort of things. Um, anyway, that's cool. Folks, you know, some folks. Yeah, well, I'm I'm gonna get around to doing some more video stuff here pretty soon, and uh, I don't play anything like any of those people, so <laughs> look out. <laughs> and you know, you know you don't, and that's actually super cool. I'm, I'm excited to hear the, the things that come out of the shred shed. I'm actually done. looking forward to doing some heavy stuff with it. Uh, that's that's what I've been doing. I've been doing heavy, like, um. Well, I, it's actually been really fun for like doing ambient stuff too, and but like I'm doing like the I love it with with this uh, couple different fuzzes. I'm trying to decide which one I want to want to use, but I was using it with my uh, just old Russian big muff the other night, and I was just mm -hmm. I, I just I, I lost. It was one of those times where you lose track of time. I haven't done that in a while, <laughs> and it was all of a sudden like, oh, we've been doing this for two hours. Better probably better go to bed um since yeah, that, it's that's a good after, sign after midnight so that might be it i don't know i haven't decided yet but i want to do some heavy stuff with it because that's that's one thing i haven't seen and i think that it actually really excels at it for for me i like baritones with lower output pickups i think are just a magical combo and i don't know why that's not been explored more but i i i think it sounds good so Anyway, yeah, the baritone market in general, I guess, is small, but that doesn't mean there's still not a lot of potential users out there. But uh, it is a smaller market, um, and I think a lot of the manufacturers, or I should say, all the manufacturers, I think, have a baritone guitar. 
but it tends to be the token baritone. Oh yeah, yeah, we got one of those. You know, lots of five ninety nine baritones out there mm-hmm. because you know someone gets the itch for a baritone and they don't want to drop big bucks on something you know handmade by some guy. But you know they, they can spend six hundred bucks on something they'll use once in a while. So yeah, there's just yeah. a lot of let's just say less expensive baritones out there. Yeah, I, I mean, I I feel like the market might be coming around a little bit. I think a lot of people, once they get to experience one, it's a, it's such a unique sound, you know, having that, that extra scale length and, and, you know, and the availability now to like get actually like the right string sets for a baritone is a lot better than <laughs> yeah. like, you know, in the past it was just like, you guys kind of were stuck with whatever off the shelf. And so, uh, you know, I, now you can get custom sets and get it all dialed in. You know, not to plug uh, yeah. my my job, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> joy is uh, oh, the place. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I started doing artist stuff for them here right before all of the the COVID stuff. Um, so in addition to all the other things, but I truly I've believed in Scott and the team down there for years. So uh, I'm looking. I, I I got these this custom set for my. Uh, my millimetric baritone yeah. and I, I, I give it a try on, on this thing while I've got it just for kicks. Cause I really like it on the millimetric, but this is a little longer scale length. My millimetric's only 27. This is 28 and a half. Is that right? 28, 28 and a half. Yeah. And with the tailpiece, um, it's, it just barely works on standard baritone strings. It does, but uh, you have slightly longer scale length, plus the fact that you need an extra, you know, three quarters of an inch with the tailpiece versus a stop tail. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's right at the limit of what some uh, some baritone strings will uh, will fit on. What made you decide on that scale length? Um, it was partly a practical decision. Um, I was already making the Mendocino, right, which is the standard version, 25 and a half, uh, st- a straight 25-inch scaling. And from a manufacturing standpoint, I had kind of figured out that if I made it 28 and a half inch scale and attached to the neck at the, I think, the 18th fret, that the pickups and the bridge would basically be in the same spot. So I could use uh-huh. the same body and the same top and basically just drop in a different neck in production okay gotcha Um, so it wasn't so much like oh 28 and a half inch sounds so much better than 27 it was more uh, a little kind of a practical decision gotcha Um, yeah the and the fact that it was longer is better anyway i think right i mean if you're gonna go baritone go you know eke out all of the crazy baritone vibe you can and you know so the longer scale length helps with that yeah, the only reason we went with 27 on the millimetric is because that was my my first baritone. And, well, it was my first six-string baritone. And I have a Roni seven-string that is also 27. And at the at the time I got that, I was like, man, this thing feels like a mile long to me. And I feel like if I go much longer, I'm it's going to feel awkward. So Florian's like, oh, we can do 27. That's that's fine. And he's okay, like, I think... What do you normally do? Uh, he, well, I actually have the first baritone he ever made, so I don't know if okay, he, okay. he didn't have a normal at that point. Um, but he was also like, I think it'll 27 will aesthetically work better on this particular guitar. Um, 
So we ended up going 27. That's the only real reason we did it. But after getting used to both of those for several years, the adapting to the 28 and a half was no problem. Like, yeah, I find that I get used to the 28 and a half super quick. And, and if I've spent a few days on the baritone, sometimes a regular guitar, it feels like a toy for the first five minutes. I'm just like, oh, everything's <laughs> so small and close together. It's just how cute. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there was a, a big difference when I, I got done playing the Mendocino here recently. And then I strapped on my Les Paul Custom and uh, right. it was A, a lot shorter, but also about five and a half pounds heavier i'm i'm just guesstimating i'm not sure <laughs> yeah no probably <laughs> what what oh, are those yeah. normally coming in at for weight just out of curiosity the, the, the mendocino is usually just a touch over five pounds every once in a while they'll be under five but i can't guarantee that you know because every piece of wood's a little different so let's mm-hmm. say just a hair over five and then the baritones weigh a tiny bit more so they're usually more like in the five and a half pound range yeah, it feels super light. Like, I was just like, crazy light. Yeah. It's like deceptive. When you pick it up out of the case, you're like, oh, whoops. Like, did I just get super strong? Like, what's going on right now? <laughs> and that's a little bit of a throwback to the acoustic guitar thought process, you know, which is when you pick up an acoustic guitar that feels like a boat anchor, that's a bad sign that it's probably not going to be the best sounding acoustic guitar. And you, mm-hmm. you, know, you pick up an acoustic guitar and it just floats, it weighs nothing. Those are you know, it's a pretty good sign that it's going to be, it's lightly built and it's going to be very lively. And uh, so, you know, it's a, l- a little bit uh, of the acoustic guitar stuff sneaking in. So, and a little one thing- bit of the design goal. I, I wanted to make a light guitar, you know, just as not, not that, not that I sell tons of them because of their light, but it's, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> right. Right. You, you never heard anyone say this guitar is too light. I can't play it. But right, the, right, right. <laughs> true sometimes. So one thing we haven't really got into is your musical influences. Like what made you get into all this in the first place? Oh, well, you know, I just always have been into music and sound. Like even as a kid, right, just super into stereos and all of that kind of thing. And always, always, always been into sound and uh, in one form or another and guitar guitar. I've always been into guitar as well, but I'm really a bad guitar player. You know, so I, I was fortunate early on, let's say when I was in my late teens to realize that I wasn't going to make any money playing guitar. Right. I mean, I might think guitar is awesome, but I'm not, you know, I need to find some other way to make money in and around this music business. Um, so, you know, guitar has always been part of it, but, it, but I was lucky early on to, to look, to, to figure out I needed to focus on something else. Um, and, you know, in terms of, when you say musical influences, do you mean like bands or do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Artists or yeah. anybody. Doesn't... Well, you know, that is so, geez, that has morphed so much over the years. Um, but, you know, obviously it tends to be guitar player centric stuff. Um, you know, I, I was, I grew up in the eighties, you know, sort of in the hair metal days, um, oh, yeah. which meant, you know, I listened to Van Halen and, um, oh, what's his name? Steve Stevies from, or from, uh, uh, Billy Idol and, uh, oh yeah, the police, all of that sort of stuff was sort of like my high school music scene. Um, and you know, Night Ranger is from around here where I live. 
So that was kind of, they were kind of a cool local band, even though they were bigger than local, but still, you know, they, they got extra kudos cause they were from here. Right. Um, uh, and then, you know, like how do you, you know, Eric Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan, all of those sort of guys, how do you not just listen to that and go, Oh, that's, that's awesome. And then, you know, to a lesser extent than some musicians might tell you, but, but it's a similar idea is, you know, you listen to Steve Ray Vaughan and, and you think he's awesome or George Thorogood or something like that. And then eventually you start realizing that, that they learned this stuff from someone before them. And yeah, so that kind of leads you back into, to looking at old blues, you know, like, like if you listen to Hound Dog Taylor, it's kind of like listening to George Thorogood. You're like, oh, well, that's obviously where he got his shtick from. And mm -hmm. you do the same thing with Stevie Ray Vaughan, right? You can go back and see where he... So a lot of those old blues artists, I think, are really cool. Um, and, uh, but, um, you know, in modern artists, you know, I'm okay with, with uh, old country. I like that a lot. Like uh, what I would refer to as like 70s phaser country, you know, yeah. that that really gets it. That gets me going, you know, truck driving songs and, you know, sort of wailing with the phaser going. And that, that oh, stuff is, is really awesome. I think. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm with you. That's, that's what I grew up on. I love that stuff. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's called phaser country outside of my brain, but that's what I think of it as. Yeah. I just usually say like the seventies outlaw stuff. That's uh yeah, that's, that's just ugh, such my jam. And it, yeah, it's, I think it, it, my wife loves that too. Like she's like, if I only could, and it, she says, and this isn't exactly as much phaser, but same kind of era. She's like, if I could only had to listen to one person for the rest of my life, it'd be Merle Haggard. I'm like, man, I can't really argue with that. I love yeah, Merle. Yeah, that's not a horrible choice. That's all right. <laughs> so all of those guys are, you know, I, I kind of dig and, um, but you know, I'm fine. I'm happy with modern music as well. I'm really not into music that, isn't very guitar centric, you know, which is probably a little close minded of me, but you know, I'm not really into rap music of any sort. It's just not my thing. Um, but, uh, you know, dance music, electronic music doesn't get me going, but if there's a guitar in it, I'll listen to it. That's a, that's kind of a weird thing with me was I like, I don't tend to listen to a lot of electronic stuff either, but then sometimes like the sounds that I make with guitars and the couple bands that I, I do like it's so the guitars are so like distorted or processed in some other way that they are, they're like borderline synthesizers anyway. <laughs> I'm like, why? Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, why do I like this, but not that that doesn't really make any sense, but I don't know. I guess it is what it is. Like, I think I shared a, a band called uh, Show Me the Body in the group. And somebody was like, I thought you said you weren't really that into synths. I'm like, I'm not. This is guitars <laughs> and banjos. Right. It's like, doesn't sound like it at all. <laughs> I'll ran through a garbage disposal. Uh, maybe <laughs> square waved out. It's it sounds I love it, though. Whatever. I guess we don't have to explain yeah. things, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's like sort of synth MIDI guitar. You know, I could. Again, I can see how it's super cool to some people, but I just doesn't get me going, and that's yeah. fine. You know, nothing, nothing negative, other than just personal taste, right? Yeah, but, it's all it's all gravy. That's why there's different genres. That's why they yeah. exist. 
Well, we are getting down to the last few minutes of the podcast here, and right now would probably be a good time for you to say anything you wanted to say. If you got something you want to get off your chest, if you want to tell people where they can find you, whatever you want to do, this is this is your moment. Ah, oh, sure. Well, you know, I mean, I'm easy to find. Grez, G-R-E-Z, Grez Guitars, and... You know, come uh, come around, poke around, see what's there. It might be your thing, it might not. That's all right. But, you know, come check it out. And uh, sort of feel weird trying to sell anything right now, uh, considering so many of my potential customers are completely out of work um, with the COVID thing. But, uh, you know, so go, uh, go watch. here. I guess right now the important thing to me would be to go watch the live streams of your favorite bands and send them some money. That's what there I'm doing. Go. There you go. That's a good thing. Since you can't see him live, you would have spent that money on a ticket price anyway. So spend the same money you would have spent, but just send it to him. Yeah. That way. Buy at least buy a t-shirt or something. Like, yeah, exactly. That's that's a good that's good advice. I like that. This music thing is what keeps us all going. And then our favorite musicians are the reasons what well, like we just talked about. They're the reasons we're here right now talking, is because we had musicians that impacted us so go support them folks that's good it's really yeah. good all right getting into some of the classic questions here we go what is your favorite boss pedal yeah i thought about this and i guess i have to man up and admit that i don't have one um oh, that's okay yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I started playing guitar as a teenager, I didn't have any money and I couldn't afford a boss pedal. I had DOD pedals and then <laughs> used ones, right? Secondhand DOD pedals. And then, yeah. you know, later on, I did have some dough and I was kind of buying some more boutique stuff. And I sort of just skipped the boss thing. No, You know, it's not a slight boss, but I just somehow don't, I don't own any and don't really know. <laughs> well, if, you know, you might want to go revisit some of the gyms. They got some... Uh, I, I skipped Boss too for a little bit. When I first really started getting into gear, I I didn't really have any pedals, but like the first things I was introduced to were full tone, Wampler stuff, Keeley stuff. Yeah. It's like the first the first kind of pedals I played. Yeah, I really I came to enjoy really cheap pedals later on, like the used DODs and things like that. Like I <laughs> right. I love that stuff. I still love it. Um, yeah, the switches are clunky, but some of them are really cool. Um, and then I, I came back to boss later, uh, after realizing that like so many uh, pedals that I really liked were trying to do similar things to what boss was the innovator of, like they did it first. And so it's, they're definitely worth going back and checking out. Cause, uh, I did an episode a long time ago with Matt Knight from guitar nerds slash boss, and he is a big boss hmm. nerd and now works for boss. Um, and he, he goes over a lot of really cool points that boss has been like the f innovator of and things I didn't really realize that they're, they're, they've, they've kind of started in a lot of ways, started the pedal market themselves almost single-handedly. So definitely worth Yeah. And they're, well, they're, they're an icon, even though I don't own any, I certainly would admit, uh, that they're an icon. Right. Uh, so many people have played with those pedals over the years. So many shows, so many records. Yeah, absolutely. And who doesn't love a good TU2? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's the big one. I know you've probably prepared for this. What is your favorite kind of pizza? 
Plain old New York style pepperoni. Oh man, my man. I feel that. Yeah. Now, I'll eat anything though. If it's pizza, I don't care if it's Little Caesars or the gourmet thing down the street. I'll eat pizza as long as there's no pineapple on it. Oh, yes. Oh, right. My man. We're together. I cannot comprehend the pineapple thing. It just doesn't compute. Now, this is my question to my fellow pineapple-hating people. Uh, How do you feel about pineapple in general? Like, I love pineapple. Oh, okay. See, this... I'll eat chunks of pineapple all day long. You know, I love pineapple, but on my pizza, that just, I don't know. can't. can't See, I don't like pineapple, so that's why I don't like pineapple on pizza. I just don't like it. So Ah. so I'm I'm always trying to figure this out. So but I I know I'm I'm actually the weird one. I know most people like pineapple. Yeah. Most people do. Well it's like sweet and sour Asian dishes, right? Sweet and sour pork or whatever. I don't really dig that either. I don't like my I guess I don't like my savory food, but also be sweet. I don't know. I'm into savory. Yeah, I'm 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 with you there most of the time. There's there's a few exceptions for like this the sweet, salty thing can work but i'm i'm with you i like my meats to be yeah. savory 99 percent of the time right it's kind of like i'm going to go off in the weeds here it's like chutney right i mean that's just a bunch of fruit it's sweet but it and people put it on pork all the time but uh, you know i want the savory not the sweet yeah yeah i'm with you there although i will say like for pork when i'm smoking pork i will i one of my go-to like and, you know, I, I almost always inject it if like I'm doing a pork butt or whatever. I just don't, I don't want it to get dried out. Like, I'd rather have it be overly juicy than overly dry. And one of my go to's is a 50 50 combo of apple juice and uh, apple cider vinegar. And that works really well with pork, which I wouldn't I would have. Yeah, but it actually works really, really well. It doesn't really taste like it doesn't taste like apple juice. You know what I mean? You don't bite into it and go, "Ooh, this is apple. But it, it just worked better for pork for some reason. I use beer on beef. But I think it's yeah. But I do think that's a little less sweet than like eating a chunk of chunk of pineapple on top of your pizza. <laughs> yes, I would. I would not do right? that. It's, it's not. You're not introducing that much sweetness. <laughs> no, 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 no. Definitely not. Right on, man. Well, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for hanging out and sticking around and. You know, with this one, this one was actually very on topic this time, <laughs> for the most part. Wow, so, cool. Well, I appreciate you having me. You know, it's it's excellent to talk to you in person. Yeah, one of these days, just we'll... listening to you on my my uh, phone while I'm working in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a uh, you get to be on the the other side of it now. That's that's, that's a good right. time. Well, keep doing what you're doing, man. I appreciate it. I think it's awesome. Cool. Thank you very yeah. much. All right, everybody. For Barry, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All right, we did it. There's another one in the can. I know I say that every week. Should I get another saying? I don't know. People like reoccurring things. I'm not sure. I'm just winging it over here. I'm just doing the best I can. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you didn't enjoy the episode, I don't know why you're still listening this far. But I do, again, thank you for it. I really do appreciate it. So, yeah, if you want more of this conversation, we've got, oh, man, I don't even know how many episodes we got on Patreon. We're getting close to 100. I think I think we're around 90 or something. But, yeah, 90 additional episodes on Patreon, something like that, somewhere in that ballpark. I haven't counted them up. But that's a lot of extra content that you get access to for just five bucks a month, you know, and that ain't bad. It's not bad at all. 
And it quite literally helps keep the lights on around here because the patrons are currently financing the electric bill. And that is actually enormous. So thank you so much to all of those that are supporting. That means so much to me. Um, I guess the last thing would be if you want to support the show via your gear buying habits rather than Patreon, uh, which totally makes sense. I get it. I've definitely bought things from affiliates of podcasts that I enjoy. You can go to tonemob.com slash sweetwater and you'll see a page there of gear that I recommend and everything on there. I have had some level of experience with at the very least, if I don't own it myself, most of it, I own myself, but you don't have to buy that specific gear in order to support the show. Anything you get through that link, once you click through that link and you go to the rest of the website, anything you buy will come back and help scratch the back a little bit. And for that, I really, really thank you very much. Same thing goes on Reverb. If you're doing some shopping on Reverb for some vintage stuff or some used stuff, things that aren't available on Sweetwater, which totally makes sense. Reverb's got a lot of different people on there. Same thing, tonemob.com slash Reverb. And that will also be exactly the same. Anything you buy through that link will help scratch this show's back and keep the lights on and keep everything going. So thank you very much for everyone that's supported the show in any way, shape, or form, including just listening up to this point, because you are awesome. All right, you got other things to listen to. Let me get out of your ears. Talk to you next week. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you, that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to tonemob.com stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.